electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. All right, welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner. Front and center this hour, the rough week for stocks. Maybe the most important question yet. Did Amazon just save us from a more meaningful mega cap meltdown? We'll discuss and debate the road ahead for your money and the markets with the Investment Committee. Joining me for the hour today, Bryn Talkington, Steve Weiss, Jenny Harrington, and Capital Wealth Planning CIO, Kevin Simpson. Take a look at the markets here. Dow's still down a good amount today. Uh, there you go, by about 130 points. S&P hanging positive, but there's the NASDAQ, Weiss, um, getting off the mat, picking itself off the floor. Thank you, Amazon. Rates have stabilized a little bit. We're at 485 on the 10-year. The data's a bit mixed. How do you... How do you assess what's been a really difficult week? Utilities are the best sector. That tells you everything you need to know, doesn't it? It does. We'll see how long that can last because I think we're going to see the yields move up again, uh, absent an expansion of the conflicts in the Middle East. The reason I say that, if you look at at the Treasury auction, I think it was on uh, Tuesday, it was kind of punk, right? And uh, I think that's going to continue to be the narrative going forward. That's going to pressure rates. Look, the market was due for a bounce, and Amazon was as good a reason as any. Plus, I think on re- in reflection on Meta's earnings yesterday, which I thought were pretty good, I thought they were actually great, um, that the market said, hey, you know, we can pick and choose here. But in my view, this is just a momentary respite. That the dice cast, the economy is going towards recession. I think some critical companies in the earnings reporting season have missed and missed badly. And the market is just punitive. Underlying volatility in single stocks is just the largest I've ever seen, the highest I've ever seen. So I think that gives caution. And as I've said many times recently, the risks outweigh the rewards. And there's a time to play and there's time to wait because your return is is definitely defined by your point of entry. Yeah, this is not the point you're, of entry. You're, you're playing a little bit more, though, than, yeah, look, you, you bought yep. more Meta. I did. You bought more Microsoft. I did. Right? Yesterday. Yeah. Um, as those stocks had, you know, obviously had some troubles, um, even with decent earnings, you know, it's in Microsoft's case. Um, and you have Amazon, too. So it's not like you're running for the hills. You're actually getting a little more invested in the biggest names within the market. Yeah, well, well let's, let's, let's go wider in the portfolio. So yesterday, I was actually net short yesterday, uh, not necessarily at the beginning of the day, but, uh, but going into the earnings for Meta, um, I was short. The, well, through the queues, right? Right, through the queues. I was short, um, I was short you know, multiple call on on Meta, I was short, you know, the uh, the 30s, the 37s, the 42s, or whatever. So look, they didn't offset the loss there, but it was unbelievable trading. I got into Meta. I traded yesterday, got in way too early. I got in was only down six, 
and then thought I was a hero, and then it's down 18. So I really loaded up, down 17, sold part of that. But now my position right now is double what it was going into yesterday. So there's opportunity in terms of Microsoft. Shouldn't be down at all. Trade down with the market. As I've said, and as their earnings bore out, this is the number one play in AI. So. I'm happy to take on idiosyncratic risk on fundamental stories from bottoms up analysis, but not willing to take on broad market exposure. Under, I don't understand. have to. Jenny, um, in terms of Amazon, I mean, it's been, a, it's been a tough week. Let's focus on mega cap. I think that's where you know, people really need to know what, what's happening and what may happen from here and what the broader implications are for the overall market. Did, did Amazon just save us, the NASDAQ, from a bigger plunge? that seemed to be putting itself together? Maybe, I think, I think probably. And I'm thinking about the conversation we had a couple days ago where you said, are these guys tired? And I said, they're exhausted, right? So when you say a bigger plunge, probably yes. But what does that mean from here? I don't think if it saved us from a bigger plunge, I don't think it means that it's going to you know, reform a bottom and we're going to have a huge move up because when Steve says Microsoft shouldn't be down, it shouldn't be down based on the story, but I think they all should be down or at least need to take a pause based on the fact that these stocks collectively, the mega caps are up 55% this year. Yeah, but They're look how much they were down last year. So what? Okay. Right? That's what some of the bulls would say. I'm not, okay. I'm not throwing it back at you, but, but that's the bullish response. And by the way, that's Brad Gerstner would probably be the first one who was on with us yesterday to suggest that. They're, they were not overextended. They were not overvalued. Look how much they were down last year. They're up for a reason. So, their valuations, their, their PEs had actually come in but as well. But we know, but that's true. And that's right, right? But then there's always like the story versus the valuation. There's the, I'm up 150% this year. What more do you expect? What more can I give you? And so this is the battle kind of between the numbers, which Gerstner's right on, particularly when you look at Meta, where you're like, well, it's trading at 19 times earnings. They're going to have 24% earnings growth next year, 17% earnings growth the year after that. They're doing amazing work on cost cutting. It's still a great business. That's all right. But then we need to look at the human side which is just there's exhaustion, right? And people are just exhausted owning these. And then you can back up to that and say like, okay, professional portfolio managers, whether it's at the big macro level, are suddenly looking at portfolios that are unbalanced, where they have too much exposure simply to large cap US and they have to rebalance. Or individuals who are looking at positions and saying, wow, I have 9% in Apple. I have 7% in Amazon, whatever it is. And they just have to take money off the table because it's the responsible, prudent thing to do. So I think that's where this is coming out, which is rebalancing, emotional exhaustion. Um, they've done everything we can, but the math isn't terrible on them, right? It's just not. And which so is that's why, why I don't think. Which is why I use the word exhaustion, but you know, maybe there was, but that. So you rest for a minute. Rest. Maybe and then not a people, minute. well, you could make the case that some had seen enough and started buying the stocks. Kevin, I, I use, you know, Stephanie Link. Um, Buying Alphabet, right on the on the big pullback, um, taking a look at at buying more Meta, Weiss's moves, the bounces that we're seeing today. Um, you know, Meta's up three percent, Microsoft's up two. We said Amazon's up eight. Intel, we'll get to that later, is up ten. AMD's up more than three. Tesla's up today. A lot of these stocks that had been upset recently are having a rebound. How would you assess where we are? Well, I think we were overvalued a little bit ahead of our skis, and we saw things kind of come back to earth a little bit. So now there's an opportunity to regroup. The earnings are proving that the companies are continuing to warrant a higher price and, and a lower valuation, which is what you want. 
Now, Jenny and I aren't growth managers, so we're, we're, we're in a different world for the most part. <laughs> but we do own Microsoft, we do own Apple. Microsoft was my final trade last week. They crushed it across the board. Steve's totally right. I don't know that Apple's gonna be as good, and we'll get into that, I'm sure. But I think from our perspective and from Brin's, what we've been doing with these bounces, with this volatility, is writing covered calls. Steve said he hasn't seen volatility under the surface in individual names like this in a while. And we've been in a muted environment as far as the VIX volatility is concerned. And our call writing has picked up actively over the past month. And I think that's how another way you can take advantage of this. Yeah, it's a perfect segue to you, Brent, because you, you do employ a, a similar strategy at times to what Kevin does. But how do you assess where tech is right now after you know, it was a pretty turbulent week, and now we have Apple in front of us, and then in a couple of weeks' time, we're going to get NVIDIA. But where are we today as we head into that next week? January through the end of July, stocks were firmly in the driver's seat against bonds, and within stocks, it was all about tech, right? We see all that about the seven stocks outperforming the other 490, 493. But then all of a sudden, as the bond market started to wake up and say, hey, Maybe stocks are right and we're not going into a recession and we have all of this fiscal spending that's now baking itself into the economy with the IRA, with the ARA, that the bond market all of a sudden woke up and agreed with stocks and now is uninverting. And so what you've been seeing, what we have all been seeing really since August is the bond market's been firmly in control. And I think, you know, Steve touched on it. But like none of us focus on weekly bond auctions. Like it's just like not something that we do. But you're continuing to get signs that I'll say the three biggest players, the Fed, the Chinese and hedge funds are either sellers or short of, of treasuries. And so I think that until that settles down, that is going to be a headwind to stocks. I will say, though, when you look at the numbers that came out this week, I mean, Microsoft crushed it not only in tone, but in delivery, as they're using OpenAI inside of the company. And then obviously, you know, Copilot's just gonna be huge. And I think Amazon is also a really great story of, you know, has Andy Jassy finally got his sea legs? And so I think what I'm seeing is an idiosyncrasy building up with these individual names. And I think Apple probably is gonna be more like a Facebook or a Google versus an Amazon or a Microsoft. So. I think that we're going to still see dispersion of returns within these names, but until bonds settle down, I think that we all have to buckle up and, and know that volatility will remain high. You, Weiss, bought Apple puts, right? You, you concerned about what's going to be delivered next week? I am. I mean, you know, I don't know how much of impact the, uh, the 15 launch will be, because it really happened a lot of it after the quarter. But I just can't imagine that the commentary is going to be good with what's happening in China, right? We're seeing Huawei really pick up share. And the government came out and said, you know, to the government uh, entities, don't buy Apple phones. And we're seeing them shift their supply chain to India. There's a reason they're doing that. So, so Tim Cook himself was over in China, we're told. Exactly. Recently, right? Yeah, yeah, just a couple of weeks ago, if not last week. So, so I think it's kind of troubling. Plus, you know, you know it's overvalued. And they have not shown over the last few years the growth. We're seeing also the growth in their non-hardware business, and of course their, their asset light, but in services also declined. So I don't know, other than it's the ultimate market proxy because of its weighting, which albeit has been reduced over the last year in, in the indices, um, 
to me, there's no there there. It's a quality brand. It's a great brand. But, you know, it doesn't deserve to be where it is. Well, so, I mean, I, so I think the odds favor a decline. This, Kevin, is one of those names where the P.E. has come in, right? Now it's probably, a, you know, still above its 10-year historical average, but it's not as stretched as, if you believe it was stretched, it's certainly not as stretched as it was. No, not at all. And I, I think if uh, the stock sells off after the earnings and Steve's put works out, then it would be a buying opportunity to add to it. We've been writing calls left and right. I'm sure Bryn has as well. Over the past three months, we've generated $11 in premium just off of Apple. So there, there's, there's opportunity when you see a stock pull back. But to your point, it's got better valuations here. The earnings might not be fantastic, but it's a stock that I want to own for the long term. And if it pulls back after earnings, such as some of these others, I, I will be adding to it. Right. There it is. There's the forward PE, Bryn. It's a 20, we'll, call, we'll call it 27. You know, it was north of 30 not that long ago. Right. Well, so, so you're right on the PE. I mean, I own Apple and Kevin's right. When the stock was at 185, I sold the 195 January calls. That's not going to get called away from me, which is, which is great. Listen, why Apple trades at a premium, first of all, is the durability of their earnings. We all know they're not going to whiff on earnings. They have durable earnings. To me, what's concerning right now is if you look at the charts on Apple, Scott, it is well, it broke that 200-day moving average just this week, which I believe is like 168. So now you have a stock going into earnings below the 200-day moving average, and that's just like 101. You don't buy a stock once it just broke a 200-day moving average, and so I think it's going to be weak going into the print, but ultimately it will be a buying opportunity once it settles out. But I do think there's weakness in it, and it's 10% of the NASDAQ, and it's still like one or two of the S&P, so it's extremely relevant to the performance of the two most important indices out there. You know, the other conversation you guys were just having, this idea of, you know, bonds relative to stocks. How about the cover of Barron's, which says, you know, it's, uh, Jenny was talking about this, right? Ackman, he took his short off, okay? Remember, he was short the long end uh, for a long time. Right. And the reports say he made $200 million off of that position. Um, Barron says it's time to stop crying about bonds and buy them instead. What do, you, what do you make of that? Is now is now the moment to buy bonds? I mean, you still expect the yields to, to back up. So maybe you think it's too early to, to, no, to buy. No, look, I, I think over the long term, if you go further out, you'll make money in bonds because the rates now are unsustainably high. Uh, so I, I don't have any problem with that. But I'd also say for inst some institutional investors and large, you know, private investors, uh, there's another option. And that option is private credit, where you can get yields into the mid-teens. And they're, they're secured. So, you know, securitized loans are collateralized. So that's another option. So just focusing on, on the 10-year, 4.8, or the two-year at 5%, there are other options out there, including, you know, triple Bs, which will give you a superior yield to this, or paper. I own golden paper with a 5.7% coupon. So why not be there and just wait this out? But, um, you know, going back to Apple, if Apple did get crushed, I'd be the first one to step and buy it. Because I know there's an insatiable appetite for Apple So shares. let me ask you this then, since we're going back that way. Right. Does that mean that there's a floor? There's, a, there's some level of a floor un, under this market? Floor. I don't know what it is. No, uh, under the market? Yes, there's a floor under the market. Well, I mean, Absolutely. if you're suggesting no, that you're even right. somebody who's been the, one of the most cautious people, if not downright bearish on this program, says that if Apple sells off a lot, mm -hmm. I'm going to buy it. Meta was, was down. 
buy it, right? right. That's you. M Microsoft, okay, it didn't get the pop requisite right. to its earnings. What do you do? You buy more. Stephanie Link, Alphabet, buy, buy it. Okay. You know what but I mean? I haven't bought Alphabet. No, I know, but I'm just saying right. that seems to be a prevailing thought there at this moment. Some. There is for some, but let's look at broadly in the market overall and where the market is over the past year, having a reasonable year. But again, that's reflecting a few stocks. So there are some stocks. I think personally, Tesla's one of them. I think Tesla right now is on an extended downtrend. You'll see continued volatility like it's up today. But to me, that stock is still grossly overvalued with fundamentals that are failing. So, so I'm not stepping in and buying that. Netflix, you know, had a good quarter, but I don't know if that's sustainable. So. If that falls down appreciably, maybe I'd step in. So you really have to be picking and choosing with bottoms-up fundamental ra fundamentals rather than trying to play the market. The market's fine to play. I play for hedging. I don't play the market to express a positive view necessarily, but I will do that. Jenny. Okay, so you took it back to Apple. I want to take it back to bonds. I think that's a really interesting question that a lot of the viewers are very into because, you know, they have their retirement accounts to protect, their individual accounts to protect. So... Here's how I think about the stop crying about bonds. If you have a very long time frame and you don't mind the ups and downs of the market, you don't want to buy bonds even here, right? At best, if you buy a 10-year treasury right now, at best you're getting 4.9% for the next 10 years. If inflation continues, that's not you're not really getting 4.9% because you need to take inflation off of that and all you're getting is 4.9%. If you have extenuating circumstances, like college that you want to pay for, or a house, yes, or or you're just really nervous about the market and it makes you really sick and you want to sit on the sidelines, yes, you absolutely want to buy bonds here. And we've been buying bonds very actively over the last week for our clients who, who want bonds, where we had cash and we're like, whoa, you know, you can buy short, super high quality corporate paper right now and get six, six and a half percent. You can buy treasuries and get five, five and a half percent. And I don't think, I don't think interest rates are going up significantly from here. So if you stay relatively short and you, you tune out your interest rate risk, you're putting a ton of cash in your pocket, there's a lot of surety. And so I think you do buy bonds here if you need that, but I don't like the blanket idea of like, oh yes, everyone should be buying bonds here. I think bond allocations are very, very unique and circumstance specific. How, how about this, Kevin Simpson? I wanna pivot for a minute before we run out of time in our, our first block. JP Morgan shares are down about two and a half percent. And when we get news today that Jamie Dimon has filed to sell shares for the first time ever as CEO. Um, a million shares, it's part of a, a, a sale plan. Mike Mayo, the well-known bank analyst at Wells Fargo Securities, the timing of the sale along with his recent bearish comments got our attention. I'll leave it to you. I'm not going to be the one to read into anything. It, it's just notable that for the first time ever, he's selling JPM shares as CEO. Yeah, I, I, I guess it got Mike's attention. Maybe it will get our attention. It's not a thesis for getting in or out of the stock. It, it, the fact that he's never sold any shares previously, I think, is the most surprising piece of that news, at least to me. Yeah. Bryn, how do you read this? Well, you just don't know what's behind it. Was it estate planning, what have you? I agree with Kevin. I thought it was kind of incredible he had never sold. I think we lost Bryn's audio. Telling but us. Okay, I think we got you back. I'm sorry, can you start yeah. again? Because I lost you a little bit there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I just think it's just as Kevin was saying that he's never sold any shares. To me, as CEO, is, 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 to me, that's the biggest headline. You don't know if it's estate planning, but I think on his comments, 
is he always kind of glass half empty in terms of the geopolitical risks he sees out there? Because he's running probably the biggest bank in the world, one of the most important banks. So I wouldn't conflate the two at this point. Uh, I think that's just more guessing, and I think we'll, we'll come to see. But I think him never selling shares before, you know, tells you what he really thinks of what he really thinks of J.P. Morgan. I know, but it has at times, again, you know, not to make more of it than than there is, but you know, we have time stamped, if you will, prior moves by him. Remember, the diamond bottom was a sort of a seminal moment yep. in the market at that period of time. And that was a handful of years ago, a few years ago right. at least, yeah. um, where he bought J.P. Morgan shares in a, in a time of real turbulence. And that was a soothing, if you will, effect for people. How do you read this? If, 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 at, all, if at all. I, I don't really think it's an event. I don't begrudge her. As a matter of fact, when, when, I, when I was at Liam, people who worked for me, you know, and they got half their comp in stock, I tell them every time you invest, sell it, okay? Because you're you're overextended in Lehman. So, and forget that Lehman went But what about up, the financials but, in general? But, but the financials at this, at this general, moment. Right. I, I don't like them. I, you know, I, 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 I'll probably be shorting, uh, you know, the regional bank index. Uh, you know, I've been, been looking at that. I'll probably be shorting it. In terms of the big banks, I met with a couple of bankers uh, a couple of days ago. That window for IPOs and secondaries, the fat margin business, is nowhere close to opening. M&A, we've seen a couple of stock deals, but in terms of general M&A, with rates where they are, and the cost of capital, you know, at whatever, 9%, Deals don't make sense. Those are the fee businesses that drive the large financials. So I don't like them. I wouldn't buy them here. I do believe you get another opportunity. So first on J.P. Morgan, I'll bet Bryn's right that this is a tax and estate planning thing. Because the thing about Jamie Morgan. Well, I think Biden, they've said it. I think that the, the firm or, or he or whoever has, has said as much. So let's it's move beyond thing. that. That guy has so much wealth in J.P. Morgan stock that the stock can go down 60 percent and his life is totally unimpacted. So he wouldn't do something like this, right, just to just to scrape. But address the, the financials. Let's move beyond okay, that. Let's, financials. Great. So I'm actually seeing opportunity in there. And I think it's really interesting. Right. Just coming out of um, out of Silicon Valley. Bank. We were looking at Truist, MNT, PNC, and then they all shot back up, right, and got unattractive. All of those stocks are back to where they were in March, so they've actually started creeping up on our dividend income street screen and are warranting a really serious second look. It's interesting too, Steve, when you're saying you're going to short the regional banks, right? Well, we've got Columbia Bank shares, New York Community Bank shares. Actually, some of them are reporting like really decent earnings because net interest margins are great and the higher interest rate environment is benefiting them. So I actually actually think there's opportunity there. We haven't bought any of the PNC's truists yet. I'll let you know when we do. But they're attractive right now. There's a, there's a cliff coming on in the refi, number one, for, for, the, for the debt, the mortgages that are owned by the regional banks, number one. Number two, they haven't had to write down the portfolio. Because even though the office space isn't occupied... It's tiny. There, Jenny, please. Even though the office space isn't occupied, they're still current on the lease payments. So you can't write that down. So the bottom line is you've got this massive cliff. I just don't see they also make money on lending. And yes, net interest margins are higher. But as the economy goes into recession, there's going to be less, less of an appetite. Yeah, but if you actually listen to PNC's earnings call, they'll go through with you very specifically. Here is our debt related to office buildings. And it's much, much, much smaller. That's a quasi-money center, PNC. Okay. It's large enough. I'm talking Find, about the keys. I'm talking about all the others. There might regions. be a few, but but then you have a Columbia, right, that has no exposure and gets thrown out with the bathwater. If you parse through 
They've all been collectively sold off. There's a lot of opportunity. The kind of cliche is to say, oh, office debt, but the reality is, is a lot of them it's don't have cliche, that much exposure. It's fact. They don't have that much exposure. All right, so let's take a, a break. When we come back, uh, we have big moves from Kevin Simpson today. We're going to go through those. We're back in just two minutes. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one. Visit ODFL.com to learn more. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones... Our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. We're back. I mentioned Kevin Simpson making some moves that we need to go through. Uh, you sold UPS. What, what didn't you like with the earnings report? Well, it was a humbling experience because I've been banging the table about UPS, saying that the market's been getting it wrong until I saw the earnings report. And it looks like the market got it right. What I didn't like about it were the margins. We were seeing something along the lines of 13% historically. And when that dropped down to 8 it just went below our threshold. We run a very disciplined sell stat, uh, part of our strategy. It triggered a sell discipline, and we had to sell the position. Very humbling. Do you look at buying it back at, at some level? Yeah, it's a stock that we've been in and out of over time. It's going to have to go back down quite a bit for us to look at it again, just based on what's happening. 58% of their sa- uh, revenues go towards the, the employees. That's a big number. So if they're losing their sales, if they're losing their margins, it's going to affect the stock for sure. But uh, I love the company long term, but short term, we care about more, a, a lot, lot more about our clients' wallets than my ego. You were saying during the break about this name that you're looking at it. Right. We've as, been, lo- as long as it gets to a level you like, mm-hmm. but you have a number in your mind. What is it? It's 125. So we actually started researching it last February, and there's been so much going on, both from the consumer perspective, the economy perspective, the strike that they needed to deal with, and have the and, ha- and those costs that increased. Sorry, the strike costs that increased their cost of doing business. So it's been really complicated, but we've looked at it and said, you know, look, they took price. They never gave any back. Their margins are under pressure. Their um, shipments are under pressure from Amazon. There's a lot here. But for every stock, there's a margin of safety price. And around $125 a share, you're back to where you were on a kind of pre-pandemic valuation for UPS that we think builds in that margin of safety. At that point, too, we've got a 5% dividend yield. So I think I can live with it there. So I'm Give me those yeah, I mean, another 70% down is not, you know, not going to be yeah. pretty, but, yeah, yeah. you know, if it, if it creates an opportunity, I, I hear you. Um, XPO, you're, you're in that mm-hmm. still, right? right they still. report on Monday. So just a segue to a, a, right. a transport name. So this is in our discipline growth strategy, so not a dividend one. 
So XPO is up 105% on the year. We actually trimmed it when it was at 75 bucks back in September. But here's what you've got with XPO, which is we've been watching UPS, we've been watching how much trouble they've had on shipments. It's been making us really nervous, but XPO is slightly different. And you've got two things really going for them there. One, they're taking market share because of Yellow's bankruptcy. That business is all up for grabs. But the other thing is they trade at eight and a half times EBITDA versus Old Dominion, which is their direct competitor that trades at 18 times. So you've got a huge kind of multiple gap that that can close. So we didn't sell. We just trimmed. We're a little nervous ahead of earnings. I got you. Kev, the other one you did, you bought more Caterpillar. Why cat? Yeah, still a little bit of a gutsy call, huh? If, if we're worried about the economy, but we're building a position in it. They have earnings next week. Last quarter, they crushed it. I mean, they blew it away. The margins, the top line, the bottom line. They have a decent dividend, good dividend growth. If you believe in the infrastructure, which we think makes sense longer term, it's a stock that we want to definitely build a position in. But I'm, I'm, I'm suggesting that if we go through a recession, no company is recession-proof, and that may produce other opportunities to build that position out. See, that's why I'm kind of surprised. You, you yourself, you know, call it gutsy, and buying it into the number rather than on the other side makes it even more such. Yeah, I mean, we did the same thing last week with Microsoft. I think it played into our favor. UPS was a fail. We want to, get the, we want to stay within the space, so we're kind of shifting some of that money into Caterpillar. We also own Deer, and it's a position we're building out over time. Weiss, what's your take? Look, I think they're both quality companies, but uh, I think multiples are misleading. So number one, they always look cheap, but uh, there's high sensitivity, as you point out, to the cyclicality uh, of these companies. So I personally think I'd like to own them both, but I just don't believe now's the time to start a position. Okay. Uh, the headlines now with Courtney Reagan. Hey, Court. Scott, the manhunt for the suspect in the Lewiston, Maine shooting continues. Officials said they are exploring a local river after Robert Card's car and evidence were found near the shore. Public safety officials confirmed this morning that a note was found at one of the residences, but did not detail the note's contents. The judge in Donald Trump's fraud trial ordered Ivanka Trump, the former president's daughter, to testify in the case. Trump's attorney had challenged the subpoena, claiming she should be dropped as a defendant over the statute of limitation issues. Well, the prosecution said that while Ivanka Trump is no longer a defendant in the case, she still has important information. And the NHL suspended Ottawa Senators forward Shane Pinto for half the season over accusations that he participated in sports gambling. The league said it found no evidence Pinto bet on NHL games. This makes Pinto the first modern-day hockey player to be penalized for sports gambling. Scott, back over to you. All right, Court, appreciate that. Thank you. Courtney Reagan coming up, ETF Edge. Our Bob Pisani sitting down with Greg Davis of Vanguard today, the world's biggest ETF provider. Halftime's back just after this. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today.
Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. We're back on the halftime report. Senator Bob Pisani now with today's ETF badge. Hey, Bob. Hello, Scotty. I am here at Vanguard headquarters in Malvern, Pennsylvania. I am sitting on the company's brand new trading floor, and it's beautiful. Vanguard is now the world's largest mutual fund and ETF provider, and it's the second largest asset manager. $7.8 trillion in assets under management. Think about that. Let's talk with the man in charge of those ETFs and the chief advisor here, Greg Davis, Vanguard's chief investment officer. Greg, before I ask about the ETF business, the one thing on everybody's minds, direction of interest rates right now. What are you telling Vanguard investors? Where are interest rates heading going into the end of 2023 and into 2024? Oh, thank, thanks for the question, Bob. Uh, you know, what we've been trying to tell investors is that they have to stay invested for the long term and that the higher interest rate environment that we're in right now is something that for long-term investors, they're having an opportunity to actually be more diversified. They have an opportunity to be in money market funds that are offering a five and a quarter type yield. So something they haven't seen in over a decade there's opportunities in the fixed income space that we really haven't seen. So for our long-term investors, we think there's a lot of compelling value, not only in money markets, but bond funds. And then ultimately, when you talk about the direction of interest rates, you know, again, we think the Federal Reserve has a couple more hikes potentially in, in store because the markets are still operating at a relatively high level. Are rates going to be higher a year from now? Are you still going to have those five and a quarter percent money market funds? Yeah, I mean, what we think is the Fed has a good potential to rise, raise rates at least one to two more times between now and the end of the rate hiking cycle. And then the goal is for them to stay at an elevated level for longer because the economy is still running at a relatively fast speed. Inflation is still relatively high above their targets. And so we think they're going to be elevated for an extended period of time. Now, you said in January uh, to expect below average returns for stocks in the next few years. You talked about 4.7 to 6.7 percent return. That's historically below average. Uh, the S&P is up 7 8% yep. this year. Yep. Why should we be expecting below average returns in equities in the next few years? What's the problem? Here? Yeah, so a couple things, Bob. First, I would say that forecast that we gave you was for a 10-year time horizon, right? So, yes, you're right. The equity market's up about 8% this year. But, again, when we're looking out over the next 10 years or so, a big part of that is driven by valuations. When you look at where valuations are today relative to other asset classes, U.S. equities just don't look as compelling. And so when we're thinking about U.S. equities, we're expecting a 5% annualized return for the next decade. We think the international markets offer more value because valuations are more appropriately priced. You run a $2 trillion ETF business. That's one of the largest in the world. You're the two biggest that are out there with your competitors out there. What are you hearing from them? Where are the flows going this year, and where do you anticipate seeing them in 2024? We've taken in about $105 billion of flows this year. Two-thirds of it has been into the equities. Um, and I'd say when you look at equities specifically, it's been driven into two products primarily the S&P 500 index and total stock market. When you think about the other third that actually went into fixed income, the majority of it went into the U.S. ag product, total yeah. bond, and the other component was the global ag. So nice diversification across equities and fixed income. So index is still winning. That's, that's, that's the bottom line the case. right now. Okay, we're going to have a lot more coming up on Vanguard's economic outlook for 2024. That's coming up. Greg's going to give it to us along with his outlook for stocks and bonds. He'll be joined by Janelle Jackson. She's Vanguard's global head of ETF Capital Markets. Here's your chance to learn more about Vanguard's very large suite of ETF products in both equities and bonds. We'll be talking about that. That's coming up at 1.10 p.m on etfedge.cnbc.com. And then at 1.45 Eastern time, I'll have an exclusive interview. Vanguard CEO Tim Buckley, what he's telling investors as well. Scott, back to you. All right, good stuff, Bob. Look forward to all that. Thank you, Bob Pisani. Coming up, our chart of the day, one consumer discretionary stock getting slammed. Wow. 
We're going to tell you what it is. Jenny owns it. We'll get her take also. We've got to trade Chevron, too. Kevin Simpson, he owns that, and that is leading the Dow sharply lower this moment. We're back after this. back our chart of the day it is an ugly one it represents a week there is whirlpool over one week don't necessarily look at the three percent decline today jenny down 21 percent in a week it was a little worse than that earlier um man it's been brutal it's been eight straight days of declines worst week since march of 2020 what now so you may recall Back in May, we bought two stocks at the same time. We bought Stanley Black & Decker and Whirlpool. And the investment thesis was the same for both of them, which was phenomenal long-term companies. While they were pandemic beneficiaries, both the share prices shot up. Both of them, we thought, dramatically overcorrected and overcorrected for a consumer that was going to be weak. But the way the share prices corrected, you thought the consumer was going to lay down and die. So we bought both of those. We put, And by the way, Stanley Black & Decker just reported they're up about 8%. Great numbers. And so they both reported. Um, yesterday and today, and now we have Whirlpool down 20%, as you said. And I, what I did this morning is I actually added to it. So, oh, what, you added to it. I was going to ask you that. But here's the thing. So they're like, okay, you know, our previous earnings guidance was a range of 16 to $18 a share. They lowered the guidance, so now it's $16 a share. So where do you sit today with this? Where you sit today with this is you're trading at about seven times earnings. You have a nearly 7% dividend yield. You have a company that's producing $16 of earnings that covers the $7 dividend. Um, and one of the things that happened this quarter was actually our investment thesis sped up because when we bought it, we knew they had inventory that they were still washing out. That happened faster than they expected. And so where they were saying, we think inventories will return to normal Q2 2024, they're actually about two quarters ahead of schedule, which makes for the weaker guidance, but actually makes for more surety after that. So they also lowered their free cash flow from 800 to 500 million. We still think that more than covers more. That's like $9 a share, more than covers the dividend. So I think you buy it right here like I did. So we started at a two and a half percent position. Most things we start at three. We bumped it up to three percent, lowered our cost basis. I almost wish the same had happened for Stanley, although I do like the you know win on that. But it would have been nice to bump that position up too. Okay, good to hear about that. Chevron. Kevin Simpson, I come to you first because you own it. Brent, I'm going to come to you in a second about uh, energy stuff. But Chevron is the biggest drag on the Dow today. It's at least seven, taking 70 points off of the Dow. What's the story here? Yes. Um, is earnings and is there doubt in the market that the transaction with Hess is going to happen? I don't know that it's doubt that the transaction is going to happen. I think there's skepticism in how much that transaction will affect the bottom line. Chevron saying that the, that the acquisition of Hess can double their free cash flow by 2027, but it's not without risk. The earnings were okay. They came out with $6.5 billion that they banked, which was 8.5% better than last quarter. But this same quarter last year, they did over $11 billion. So I look at it as a pretty negative quarter. We're certainly not going to sell the stock or abandon it. We've owned it for 11 years. But this may be an opportunity, again, if you see a pullback similar to what may happen with Apple next week, that you could add to a position here. The dividend secure, solid, and growing. Bryn, you have certainly among the most exposure on our program to energy through various uh, methods, XOP, RSPG, Viper, Diamondback, Energy Transfer, Devon, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. How do you view this space here? 
I think, I think right now, well, first of all, as it relates to Kevin, uh, Kevin said about synergies, I think with both Exxon and Pioneer and Chevron and Hess, I think the market is questioning, are you going to actually get those synergies? Is Exxon actually going to be able to make Pioneer more efficient, those assets? So we'll see. I think the way you want to play this space, though, and the way I play it, is that you want to own the names, you want to own the names that have a high dividend, and then you want to sell calls against them. Because, Scott, what's happening in the oil, as we all know, you know, one week we're like, is oil going to go to 100? The next week people think it's going to go back to 70. I think the reality is oil stays comfortably between that 80 and $90 range. And so take that opportunity as these stocks rise to sell calls against that. Because in a portfolio, you could have a total return between the dividend yield and call premium, probably of around 15% a year with the stocks doing nothing just because of the volatility. But I do think the geopolitics and oil volatility is sloshing these names around even more. But bottom line, Scott, it has not been a good year for energy and aggregate for people who own those names in aggregate. Yeah. All right. Um, lastly, Jenny, back to you. Uh, pain and Whirlpool gain in Intel, which is having a, a big pop. Best day in nearly a year on the back of its earnings. So have we seen the worst? Yeah, probably. At this point? I think so. And remember over the past year, like every time something kind of good would happen, you'd give me some credit and I'd be nervous about taking it. I think this is where I'm finally confident about taking it because what we're seeing here is they are legitimately returning to growth. And what we're seeing is Pat Gelsinger has now had enough time to get in there, start to really fix operations, really start to execute. There's no delays. And the business is just on the trend to do better. You know what I love most about today is you saw Morgan Stanley, Stiefel, Jeffries, Mizuho, and Raymond James all begrudgingly need to increase their price targets. Well, I mean, we did have um, <laughs> Stacey Raskin, you know, a while back begrudgingly, yeah, begrudgingly. you know, take his sell off of it. Not that he was enthusiastic, but, you know, maybe it is a turning point. Thank you. All right. Up next, Mike Santoli. He'll be here with his midday word. Welcome back. Senior Markets Commentator Mike Santoli has joined us uh, at the desk. Midday word. Uh, how do you, you feel right now after this week? I mean, market is very noncommittal. You know, if you look at this sort of celebration in a muted way on, of Amazon's numbers and it got the stock back to where it was Tuesday morning, you know, before uh, we got the, uh, the results from Meta and Google. So yesterday, good relief on breath on the Russell 2000, on the bank stocks, and you give it back. So it's obviously a slippery kind of structural setup right now. I think it's worth asking, okay, so you wanted a 10% pullback. So you wanted to see some, uh, you know, evidence that the mega caps were mortal and they were going to come back to the pack. What do you do with it? And it's really a, a, a stark contrast between how the market is conveying what the macro outlook is and what the data are saying. Even the personal income and spending data this morning. Uh, were, you know, pretty much stronger than expected. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's going to decelerate, but, um, you know, it's just interesting that you have essentially this argument going on between the market and the macro data. I feel like um, next week's Fed meeting, uh, I feel strange saying this, but it could be the most consequential meeting where nothing is expected to happen. Right. Because you're going to pay attention to the words of the chair in a way that we, I mean, we always do, but now with rates having backed up so significantly, I can't wait to hear what he says. No, there's a big change in the setup from six weeks earlier. That's the thing, where the prior meeting happened. 
they still, based on the dots, have one hike, you know, more likely than not the rest of the year. Well, there's only one more meeting after next week. So it's either going to happen or it's not. I don't think it matters that much. Uh, but how they characterize what's gone on in terms of long-term yields, yeah. whether it just reflects, hey, stronger than expected economy, inflation expectations are coming into line, we're okay. I don't know, see if that has an effect. Yeah, we were already, you know, kind of a little jittery in the in the bond market. I mean, if his words are going to move rates yeah. one way or the other, and we, you know, the bulls cannot afford to have him move rates significantly higher from where they are now. No, I don't know that he would, you know, beyond what they've already said about we have no intention to be thinking about cutting rates anytime soon, how much more has to get into the long end of the market. Uh, we are going to get that, uh, that supply announcement from Treasury on Monday as well. Mm-hmm. And that's probably going to be, you know, the, suddenly the new indicator that everyone's decided is the most important. Yeah. When they didn't pay attention six months ago to it, just like the Treasury general account was during the debt ceilings showdown. So, you know, we have some suspense going into next week. Yeah. All right. We'll uh, see you in a couple hours. Closing yeah. bell. This is Mike Santoli. Up next, we'll do some calls of the day. One upgrade, one downgrade, two names in the healthcare space, how the committee's positioning. We'll do it next. Welcome back. Calls of the day. First one, Merck upgraded to outperform. That's at BMO. Price target to 132 from 113. Kevin Simpson owns Merck. Yeah, we agree 100% with this call. Merck was our number one healthcare pick going into the year, down 6%. Pretty good considering healthcare is at a 52 week low today. Katruda is going to come off of uh, patent in 28 into 29, but they've got tons of cardiovascular drugs in the pipeline, beating on top and bottom line, quarterly growth going in the right direction, and we love the stock. All right, Bristol downgraded to market perform from outperform, same firm, BMO, 52-week low, Jenny, for the stock. Yeah, so we disagree with the downgrade, and we think they're not looking far enough down the road. BMY is going to produce probably $75 billion of free cash flow over the next five years, which could be really, really transformative. We think when you look five years down, it's a totally different company. In a weird way, it's a similar investment thesis to AbbVie when we bought that in 2018. All right. I'm looking at Roblox, Bryn, and I'm looking at you. It's up 2%. Upgraded today at Truist, 37 bucks from 35 What do we think? The stock could go to 37 if rates just would settle down. Listen, this is a platform. Earnings come out November 8th. So I wouldn't add to the position until after earnings. Bookings, daily active users are all growing 25% year over year. I think this is a great long-term platform and not just a gaming company. So I'm going to still say long and maybe add some more after earnings. All right, good stuff. We'll take a quick break. We'll come back. We'll do final trades next. Are you following the Halftime Report podcast? What are you waiting for? Look for us in your favorite podcasting app. Follow the Halftime Podcast now. Good lineup for you this afternoon on Closing Bell. We take you right up to the end of the trading week, 3 o'clock Eastern time. Cameron Dawson with me, Tom Lee. Tony Pascarello, he runs Goldman's hedge fund coverage. He'll be with us too, so you get a real look, an early look at his thoughts before he sends out his note to clients this weekend. Keith Lerner with us as well. Can't wait to uh, have conversations in a couple hours time. Bryn, final trade, what you got? Uh, JEPQ, if you want a granny shot, defensive way to own the best companies in the world, JEPQ sells covered calls on the QQQs with a current call premium of over 11%. All right, thank you. Kev Simpson. 
Microsoft. Microsoft was my final trade last week. It's the final trade again. They beat on top bottom. It wasn't rewarded by Microsoft. Jenny. VF Corp with a 7% yield is reporting on Monday. Look at Columbia, Deckers, and Skechers, all proxies. We could have a treat. All right. The only person rooting for both the Jets and the Giants this Sunday, Steve Weiss. I'm only rooting for whoever wins, by the way. Of course. XHB yeah, short. Uh, look, I still think it's pain trade. It may pop next week if Fed does nothing to expect. Pascarella, everybody should listen to him. He's phenomenal. All right, good stuff. Thanks for the tease. I'll see you. Closing bell, the exchanges now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. All opinions expressed by the Halftime Report participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by them on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of an opinion. Such opinions are based upon information the Halftime Report participants consider reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Halftime Report Disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Halftime Report Disclaimer. Imagine earning a degree that prepares you with real skills for the real world. Capella University's programs teach skills relevant to your career, so you can apply what you learn right away. Learn how Capella can make a difference in your life at capella.edu.